The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Daniel. Daniel 9 is where we are at today. Sam Storms, who has preached here a number of times, pastor down in Kansas City, he recently called the passage that we're about to look at one of the most important prophetic passages in all the Bible. And it's because of the influence that it's had in the church historically, trying to put Scripture together. And even this week, um, I... I found myself becoming more unsure as to my interpretation of the passage. And so I enter in today with, with that on my mind, and uh, the Word is our guide. I'm going to walk us through what I think this passage is saying, and um, because it's so important, I'm going to take the time, we, we didn't jump over it, uh, but... I also, I, I feel humbled before this book, and I, I feel like I still have questions of things that I can't answer. And so I'm, I'm just letting you know that right off the bat, and uh, we're going to walk through this passage that has a number of challenges, and I, I pray that the Lord would give us clarity positively, um, the big message of Daniel is clear. God reigns through Jesus. Amen. And with that in mind now, we approach this text. Pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, thank you for your book. I'm asking for clarity. I want to be able to teach with conviction and yet humility. I pray that you would help each of these in this room uh, judge this text, uh, give us clarity. We want to be dependent on you. Thank you that um, though there are troubling texts that we try to put together, the big message of the gospel is so clear. This text points to it in beautiful ways, and I want to celebrate what is absolutely clear today. And so uh, guide us and be our help. Amen. All right, so the book of Daniel, two big parts, God's sovereign control in the present, God's sovereign control in the future, and we are in the future portion. We've just spent two weeks walking through all the first six stories. Uh, last week, we built on specifically chapter two, the dream in chapter two of the giant statue, and built upon it through the two visions, first of the four beasts and the Son of Man and the vision of the ram and the goat. And then we began to introduce this 70 weeks vision. 70 sabbaticals. Israel's calendar was built on the Sabbath. 
We all know that they had six days of work, one day of rest. But they also had a sabbatical calendar that was bigger than the week, so that they would have six years of work and a seventh year of rest, where the land didn't have work, where the people would gather together. Specifically, Deuteronomy 31 tells us that on the sabbatical year, they would gather together and renew their covenant before God. They would have the entire book of the law, the book of Deuteronomy, read to them, and the people would recommit their lives to the Lord. That was what was supposed to be happening. But what we learned last week is that Jeremiah ended up proclaiming a 70-year exile because there were 70 sabbatical years in Israel's history that they did not pause and give themselves over to the Lord. That they didn't give the land rest. And so in Leviticus 26, God had said, "For I, I, If you turn from me and disobey me, then I will send you into exile. And the exile will be equivalent to every year that you don't pause, every one of the sabbatical years which was one out of seven, every one of the sabbatical years that you don't uh, honor me. And so there apparently were 70 of them. For over a 490-year period, they went 70 times, that's 77s, 70 times where they did not celebrate the sabbatical year. So the exile, Jeremiah said, was going to be 70 years. And that's where, in the beginning of this chapter, in Daniel 9... Daniel 9, verses 1 and 2, that's where we begin. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70. So he's counting. He's in exile up in Babylon, separated from Jerusalem, separated from God's presence, having gone into exile in 605 B.C., that was the year that Jeremiah actually made his prophecy, and he's counting. It's 538 B.C., and Cyrus of Persia comes to the throne. Some think it's the same guy as Darius. Uh, It's a little bit... Challenging, but we at least know that when we come to Second Chronicles 36, which we looked at last week, we're told that um, at the very end of Chronicles, in order to fulfill the word of Jeremiah in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia's reign, he decrees that Israel can go back to their homeland. And so I think that that's lining right up with what Daniel is anticipating. Seventy years is what Daniel has been counting. It's coming to the end of the 70th year, of the, that is the end of the curse. Daniel says in chapter 9, verses 9 and 11, 9 through 11, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled. What have you rebelled With respect to, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord by walking in all of his laws that he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law. We've refused to obey your voice. The curse and the oath that were written in the law of Moses have come upon us. This is a time of curse, not blessing. Seventy years of curse. We also saw that 
This aligns with Isaiah's two-stage restoration. Isaiah envisioned that Israel would go into exile and that their return would happen in two parts. The first stage would be led by one named Cyrus. 150 years before Cyrus is even on the scene, God foretells through his prophet Isaiah that Cyrus is the one who would move you from Babylon back to Jerusalem. But that was only the first part Stage one of Israel's restoration. Nothing was done in their hearts. No certain reconciliation was made with God. Sins had not been done away with. The ultimate temple of God had not been established. His his presence hadn't returned. The king was not on the throne. The enemies of God were not put down. They're looking for more. And that stage of reconciliation where the ultimate restoration would finally come to fulfillment was all focused in Isaiah's mind on the servant, the suffering servant, the conquering king. And that is the one we know of as Jesus. So my understanding is that the 70 years of Jeremiah relates to the physical return, but that's only stage one. And they're anticipating stage two that would be led by a Messiah, Jesus. And that stage two is related to Daniel's 70 weeks. So what God does is Daniel's getting excited that the 70 years is about to come to an end, the 70 years of judgment. What God does is steps Daniel back and says, just remember, Dan, this is only the end of stage one. You've been counting 70 years. There's going to be another 70 sabbaticals. That is 70 sevens, or it's translated in the ESV, 70 weeks before the Messiah will rise. So now we come to chapter 9, verse 24. As we do, I want us to keep in mind this chart that I gave us last week, that we filled in last week, of the four kingdoms in Daniel. And it's during the fourth kingdom, so we start out with Babylon. You are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. We move to the vision of Medo-Persia, which will be overcome by Greece. And then there's a fourth kingdom, more terrible than any of the other kingdoms. It's not given a name. In the chronology, it would be Rome. But Daniel doesn't give him a name, and I think it's intentional because the depiction of the beast in the days of Jesus, is a type or a picture of, the, of all evil that will be unleashed on the earth until the ultimate end. So, he's not named because even Rome itself is just a picture of, of all the work of what we know, what we call the Antichrist. All the work of the Antichrist, which John in 1 John 2.18 says, You've heard that the Antichrist is coming? I tell you, it is the last hour, quoting Daniel, it is the last hour and many Antichrists have already arisen among us, bringing false teaching and persecution. The two key elements of the Antichrist. That the spirit of the Antichrist, this anti-Messiah figure who wants to crush the kingdom of God, who bears in his being a picture of the serpent in the garden who was a kingdom-thwarting who had a kingdom-thwarting mission. This Antichrist figure is bound up in all, bound up in him is all that is hostile to God and his ways. 
And that spirit of the Antichrist has been alive in a very real way ever since the days of Jesus' time on earth. And it's right now, false teaching and persecution is kind of happening in pockets. That's how it's been happening over the last 2,000 years. So there's parts of the church in certain parts of the world that are undergoing intense persecution, other parts that are experiencing high levels of false teaching. But the image of the book, and this is one of the reasons why I think um, Rome is not named, is because all of these will are, are, are happening even now, but they're going to climax at the end of the age in a culminating individual called the Antichrist. Many, many Antichrists alive today, an ultimate Antichrist figure coming, when the persecution and false teaching will no longer be pocketed, but it will be global. And what the church of Jesus experienced in persecution, first of all embodied in Jesus himself, before experiencing his resurrection... He had to carry his cross. Now we as the body of Christ, identified with our Messiah, carrying our cross daily. What was experienced of the church in the first century has been happening in pockets, but will intensify and climax at the end of the age. Daniel has all of this, I think, in his mind. Even if, how much he has it all together, I'm not certain. Chapter 12 actually says, put it into a book and seal it up so that no one will fully understand it until the day of fulfillment. And then the book will be opened, the seals will be disclosed, and part of it is bound up in the mystery that Paul says has been revealed in these last days. We're able to see things more clearly than most of Daniel's audience could see. We're able to read the Old Testament better than most of those in the Old Testament could read it. Because only in Christ is the veil removed, says 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. So that even the Pharisees of Jesus' day are blinded from the truths of the Old Covenant. They read the Old Covenant, says 2 Corinthians 3, 14. They read the Old Covenant, but they still have a veil over their eyes. They can't see what they're supposed to be seeing. What I want us to... The reason I put the chart up here is because we're going to talk now more for, uh, fully about the one in Daniel 7 who's called the Son of Man. We're going to see him in our text. And the timing of his arrival is supposed to be during the fourth kingdom, which begins with Rome, but Rome is only a picture, I think, of, of the kingdoms of man that will only increase in evil against God's kingdom-building purposes, and over which the kingdom of Christ will triumph. So we begin. Look with me at Daniel chapter 9, 24. Seventy weeks are decreed. They're decreed about your people and about your holy city, Dan. So they're decreed with respect to the Jews. They're decreed with respect to Jerusalem. What will happen within a 70-week period? That is, 70 sabbaticals, 70 sevens, 490 years. Now, I, I should say right off the bat that there are a number of godly, very godly men, like Sam Storms, that look at this 490 number and read it symbolically. They're not looking for 
a specific time frame where you can say, okay, one year's done, two years done, three years done. Now, I mean, we're five years away. Can you believe it? And, but rather, we're supposed to read all of this symbolically. That's very possible. The fact that Daniel is perceiving in the books that the 70 years, though, is about to come to an end suggests to me that he's actually counting his calendar. And that suggests to me that I'm supposed to also be counting the 490 years. The sabbatical was not a sim- it was symbolic, but it was also real. The real calendar in Israel's history was pointing to an ultimate jubilee when the Messiah would come and inaugurate the year of jubilee, that is the year of the Lord's favor, when all evil will be put down and He's proclaiming peace has come. That's what all these sabbaticals are anticipating. When God would sit on His throne, so, so Israel, even their 6 plus 1 pattern, the first week of the, of the creation doesn't only tell us what happened, it tells us what should be. So that everyone who's reading Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is reading about a creation period, six days that God worked, seventh day He rested. They're reading that as what was, okay, God commissioned humanity to image Him, and on the seventh day God sat on His throne Sovereign rest was realized. He was at perfect peace with all that he had made. And all that he had made was at peace with its God. But those who are reading Genesis 1, the sabbatical flow, are reading it recognizing that the fall has twisted everything and the world is not at peace with its God. He's still king over all, but now we have a responsibility to be imagers of God, and to to display God on a global scale, to see fulfilled what the commission that was given to Adam, fill the earth, multiply, and subdue it as imagers of God, to take the image of God out from the center of the world, from the tabernacle. It's it's like the the Garden of Eden was a temple that was supposed to be ever-expanding, as the imagers of God would would display God in ever-increasing ways. The temple of God was to be ever-expanding until it filled the whole earth. That's the goal of creation, and that's why Israel's covenant sign was the Sabbath. It was their identity. They were to be the key means through which Sabbath was to be realized on a global scale once again. That the world was to be submitted to God, but they weren't submitted to God. And through Israel, the world would be blessed. That is, the Sabbath, God's sovereign rest, would be realized again all over the world. This is the vision that Israel has. That they are to be the instruments, ultimately through their representative king, they are to be the instruments through which Sabbath would be realized all over the world once again. They have it in their weekly schedule. They have it in their yearly calendar. An ever-present reminder in the Old Covenant that the goal of life was to reach Sabbath. Now, I'll just pause here and say, in Jesus, those who come to Him find rest. Because Jesus is the King. That is, in Jesus, Sabbath is already started. 
That's why we don't celebrate on Saturday anymore. We're not living for the goal of reaching the Sabbath. Rather, Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday, inaugurating the Sabbath. Inaugurating our God reigns. And so, today, we are gathering on a Sunday morning in order to celebrate what we get to enjoy seven days a week. That is the Sabbath sovereign rest of God. All of Israel's existence was pointing to the day when the Sabbath would be fulfilled. Jesus is the ultimate representative of Israel who inaugurates the Sabbath. He inaugurates, begins, what is not yet consummated, but he begins 2,000 years ago the reign of God in and through us. He is seated on the throne right now. And through the church, the kingdom of God, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, is beginning to expand. So that the glory of God might fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, just like it was originally intended in the Garden of Eden. With that in mind, we now approach Daniel 9.24. Seventy sabbaticals are prophesied until this comes about. Just think about how long we've been walking through this Old Testament. How dark it's gotten. How much sin we've experienced. How much brokenness. How much pain. When we were in Lamentations, just, I mean, the curse is right there. Just seeing how, how broken Israel had become. And to that people, this word is given. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city. To do what? Six things. The first three related to the curse, the completion of the curse. The second three related to the inauguration of the blessing. To put an end, sorry, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity. Does that not sound good? To bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place, thing, or person. It just says, and to anoint a most holy something. Six things that are going to be accomplished at the end of this sabbatical vision. Seventy sabbaticals are decreed to bring about the completion of the curse, and the initiation of all restoration blessing. Keep hoping. Keep resting. Keep trusting. It may seem like God is not on the throne, but I'm telling you, He's on the throne now, and He's going to display that He's on the throne in the future. All the kingdoms of men that are beastly will be crushed when the Son of Man rises and takes His scepter. It's going to come, and you can start counting. All of these are associated, if you're reading the book of Isaiah, all of these are what's associated with stage two of Isaiah's mission. All of these are connected to what the Messiah, Isaiah's servant, was to accomplish. He would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brings us peace fell upon him. By his stripes were healed. He will undergo 
because his father is pleased to crush him, to put him to grief, he will become a guilt offering. But if he does, he will rise again because it says he will see his offspring. Though the servant will have never born children physically, the world will be filled with his spiritual offspring. And he will see them and he will be satisfied. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. God's righteous one, so I'm just walking through Isaiah 53, I'm now in verse 11. God's righteous one will account many righteous. The righteous one will declare others to be righteous. Finishing transgression, putting an end to sin, atoning for iniquity, bringing in everlasting righteousness. Isaiah 53 is envisioned, all of these are linked up with the age of the Messiah. And it's going to take 70 weeks of years, 70 sabbaticals until he comes. Now, at the top of your page, this is always a challenge when we are faced with a translation difficulty. And I'm going to depart from the ESV here. I, I just, I'm going to tell you why. I don't think the ESV makes much sense. And it has nothing to do with the Hebrew text. It just has to do with uh, where we put periods and commas. So let's look at what the ESV says, and then we'll look at what the... New American Standard says, and we'll compare the two, and then I'll tell you why I'm, I think the New American Standard is right here, along with every other English translation. From the going out of the word, so a decree is going to be made. A decree is going to be given from the going out of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, that's the word Mashiach, Messiah, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, remember it's broken and in ruins. It needs to be rebuilt. To the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks, period. Then, so, so seven weeks are going to pass. That is 77s, sorry, seven sevens, that's 49 years. 49 years are going to pass, Daniel. And then the anointed one will come. Well, Daniel is right now hearing this at 538 B.C. 49 years from that point is a long time from when we would see Jesus. So, this anointed one, according to the ESV, would not be Jesus. Seven weeks are decreed. Then, for 62 weeks, after the anointed one is come, who's a prince, there shall, it shall be built again, what will? Jerusalem. But it says, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, there will be seven weeks. Now, in the next 62 weeks, it says, Jerusalem will be built with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 60 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. Here's the New American Standard. What we have to see is this anointed one who comes after the 62 weeks would have to be a different anointed one than the one who came after the seven. 
But in the New American Standard, they're the same anointed one, the same Messiah figure. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So 69 weeks. Everybody see that? It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Let's just look at these two a little more carefully. There will be seven sabbaticals, 49 years, to the anointed one, says the ESV. And then there will be 62 more sabbaticals, 434 years, to rebuild Jerusalem. That totals 483 years. And then after that 483 years, after the 7 plus the 62, a new anointed one will rise. Everybody track that flow of thought? Here's the New American Standard. Three different stages that it sees. From the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem... Until the Messiah, there will be 7 plus 62. And then what you see, the idea would be, he pauses after the semicolon, and he says what will happen in the first seven weeks, and then he tells you what will happen after the 62 weeks. So, from the issuing of the decree... To restore and rebuild, until the Messiah, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Jerusalem will be built again with plaza moat, even in times of distress. Then, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. So we've got seven sabbaticals, 49 years to Jerusalem's rebuilding. 62 sabbaticals, times of distress, a troubled time. Seven plus 62 sabbaticals equals the time of the Messiah. So Jerusalem will be built again with plaza, moat, even in times of distress. There will be seven weeks, 62 weeks. Then I'm saying, I think it focuses on what happens in the seven. Then it focuses on what happens up until the time of the Messiah. Seven sabbaticals, 62 sabbaticals, and then the Messiah comes. I think... The Messiah in verse 26 is the same as the Messiah in verse 25, the anointed one. So anointed one, anointed one, New American Standard translated both as Messiah, interpreting them both in the same way. I think that this one is probably right, but it's possible, as some have suggested, that the first one is merely, the first anointed one is like a Nehemiah figure. But the second one, everybody agrees, the one who will be cut off. That's an image of the Messiah being cut off, judged. At the flood, the curse, when God brings it on the world, he says, all the world is cut off. Colossians chapter 2, it said, Jesus underwent a circumcision not made with hands. He was spiritually cut off. Not physically. Spiritually, cut off. And it's talking there, I believe, about his death. That's, I think, what we're getting at here. 
Let's look now, consider, this, consider the time frame. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild. A decree. Well, there's many different proposals. If we're thinking about actual time, we have 490 years to work with. Well, in 605, this is the year that Daniel is exiled, the same year that Jeremiah prophesies 70 years of exile. If you go seven sabbaticals, that's 556. 62 more sabbaticals is 122 B.C. And one more seven-year sabbatical is 115 B.C. That would mean we're not talking about Jesus in any of this. But this decree of Jeremiah was not about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Yet, what we're told up here is from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's not what happened in 605. That's actually what we first hear about in 538. In 586, this is another date that some people have proposed. That's when the temple was destroyed. So they start counting 70... um, Seven sabbaticals, 62 sabbaticals, one sabbatical. I I don't think either of those are right. I think these are the two best possibilities. 538 is when King Cyrus decrees, it's it's the year that I think Daniel's talking about in Daniel chapter 9. The year that Cyrus decrees, you can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. That's what it says the restoration is supposed to be about. In 458, we have another decree that Jerusalem can be rebuilt. And then in 444, that's when Nehemiah gets to go and be the governor of Jerusalem. So let's look at 538 as a possibility. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, this sounds good, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. So here it said, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there will be seven weeks. From the issuing of the decree to the time when I think Jerusalem is rebuilt, there will be seven weeks. Well, that sounds promising. The problem is this. If the sabbaticals are actually bound to Israel's calendar of sabbaticals. It wasn't just random, any seven years. No, they're set, and we even know what they are. At least back to the end of the exile, we know what the calendar was, and 538 doesn't fall on a sabbatical year. What's intriguing, though, is that 457 does. And this is what we read. So we know that Cyrus made a decree, and so many people want to just connect the 70 weeks of years to start the counting at Cyrus's decree. But what we have to see is that, if you've read the beginning of Ezra, you know that there were problems in the building process. They started building, and then the Samaritans rose and freaked them out, and they stopped the building. 
They, so there's the first return under Haggai and Zechariah. Seventy years later, Ezra is raised up and he returns because they still haven't even built the city. And that's why in the days of Ezra, this is what we read. The elders of the Jews were successful in building, how? Through the prophecy of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they finished building according to what? The command of the God of Israel and the decree, singular, of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. So, when I look at this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild, and I want to start my counting, what's... What I'm looking for is not just... I'm looking for when, did, when was it finally finalized? When was it official that they could build this thing? The first king declared it. But then everything went south. The second king had to declare it. Everything went south. It was only when Artaxerxes finally made his final declaration. But he was just affirming what the two kings before him had done. Now it's called the single decree. One decree of all three kings. And that decree happened in 457. So what's intriguing here, and I always get a little bit leery of Bible math, okay? But if God is wanting to comfort His saints, and the 70 years was an actual time frame, then there's no reason to not think the 490 years wasn't an actual time frame. AD 33 is the most common time when people think Jesus died. The other option is AD 30. It's one of those two. 458, that says 457, 458 plus 33 equals 491. So if it's coming at the 458th year B.C., and we go to 33 A.D., then we have the 458 years plus 38 years. That's 491 years, but there's no zero on a calendar. You're not like I'm living in the year zero. You go to 1 B.C., you go to 1 A.D., which means that you have to subtract a year, and you get exactly 490 years at A.D. 33. But that only works when you start at 457, which is the decree... The final decree, when all of the, when, when it becomes absolutely certain and it's accomplished, that Jerusalem is going to be fully rebuilt. If you start in 538, you're still way before the days of Jesus. If you go 444 in the times of Nehemiah, you're way after Jesus. If you're right at 458, you end up exactly the time of Jesus' ministry when the Messiah was cut off. Seventy weeks sabbaticals. Now we go to the next verses. Let's look here. And after sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. 
Who's the he? The prince, I think. He will make a strong covenant with the many for one week, and for half of a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. When I was in 12th grade in high school, it was time for me to write my English composition paper. And my senior, I was at a Christian school, and the, my comp- composition instructor said, I'm like, what should I, instructor, teacher, uh, I said, what should I write on? She's like, well, you love Bible, right? And I said, yes, I do. She said, well, how about you write on the end times? I said, okay, sounds great. So she gave me this stack of um, you know, charts and uh, details um, you know, the, the charts that, I should have brought one in, I, I have one in my office, uh, charts that are, you know, really long and, and um, they're so exact in numbering and um, I wrote a great paper, got an A, and now I look at that and I scratch my head because I, <laughs> but this was one of the texts I'm sure that was in there because if you read it in a certain way, you can see amazing things. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. That is, the Messiah will be crucified. And the people of the prince who is to come. Now we move from Messiah to, in this line of thinking, move from the Messiah to a distinct person, a different person, a prince. He will look like a king and have authority. Call him an antichrist figure. He shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary, often imaged as 70 AD when the temple falls. And then, what was just a picture of the temple being destroyed in 70 AD, will now, at the end of the age, come to pass in a greater way. So it says, its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, this same prince, if if the first part is talking about the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem, verse 27 is now saying, the one who brought an end, uh, Titus probably, an antichrist figure in 70 AD, the one who brought an end, he was only pointing to the ultimate desolator. This one shall make a covenant with many for one week. That is seven years. A seven-year tribulation. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, potentially in a new temple. And yet he will bring it to an end. And on the wing of the abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the end is poured out on, all, on that desolator and the Antichrist is brought down. Now, how many have heard that, that line of interpretation in this text? I have. You don't have to raise your hand. Everything hinges on our tracking of the individuals. How we interpret the individuals, the players in this text... And that's why it's one of the most 
influential, significant prophetic texts in the Bible for putting time together and understanding how things are going to play out. Let's walk through this now carefully. Have your Bibles open. After 62 weeks, that is after the initial seven weeks and 62 weeks, at the end of this full 69 weeks, that's what we're talking about. That's when this is supposed to happen. Now, in certain models, there are major gaps in the calendar. In one of the models, you go by 69 weeks, then the Messiah rises after the 69th, that is 7 plus 62. The Messiah rises after that, and he dies, but he dies before the 70 weeks, the 70th week actually starts. Because the 70th week happens at the end of history during the one week when the Antichrist rises, and then at the end of that week, finally, he is put down, and then verse 24 goes operative. Verse 24, where it says all six things, the curse is finally put down, and the blessings are initiated. But that puts a big gap between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. Others will say the 69th week comes to an end, the Messiah rises, and that's the kickstart of the 70th week, and that 70th week has lasted 2,000 years. Okay? So we're still in the 70th week. And that's a possible reading of the text. I want to make a possibility, a, a proposal that says... We're just supposed to read the 490 years from the time of Daniel up until the time when they're done. And when those 490 years are done, 2,000 years ago, everything, every promise will have already been made yes in Christ. Everything will have been fulfilled, though not consummated. Everything will be fulfilled. Every, all the 70 weeks that Daniel prophesied, I want to propose, carefully propose, that it's been accomplished. And we're living in the context of the kingdom of God that has been, not, it's not consummated. All the enemies of the world are not put down yet. But the kingdom, the stone has risen. And indeed, it's in the process of crushing the kingdoms of the earth. And we've already experienced the Son of Man, and He already is King. That's what I'm going to propose. So now let's look. 70 weeks proclaimed to fulfill the purposes, not of verse 25, of verse 24. To put an end to transgression, sin, and iniquity, and to bring about righteousness, the fulfillment, the, the fulfillment of all prophetic words, and the anointing of the most holy person, place, or thing. An anointed one shall be cut off. When it says that, I and all other evangelical scholars... I believe, are agreeing that we're talking about Jesus the Messiah. In verse um, 26, I think that evangelicals are 
relatively, pr pretty much fully united, that we're talking at that moment about the Messiah, Jesus' death being cut off on behalf of the many. It says that this Messiah will have nothing. Now that could just mean that he's, in the moment of being cut off, he's been... Um, it could be like a Philippians chapter 2 image. Though he was in the form of God and was equal to God, he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but he gave everything. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. That could be what we're talking about. But it, the exact same words could be translated this way. The anointed one shall be cut off, but not for himself. Literally, it just says... He will be cut off and not to him. That is, not to him, he, he doesn't have anything. That's the ESV surrendering. Or, and not to him, that is, but not for himself. Meaning that it's substitutionary atonement. It's, he's not dying for his own sake, he's dying for the sins of others. The people of the prince. Now, who's the prince? It's given to us kind of out of the blue. I mean, if this is a different person than the Messiah, he hasn't been identified. But if you look up at verse 25, it explicitly says, Therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. The anointed one, the prince. And if I'm right that this is the same Messiah as in verse 26, he's already been called the prince. So it seems to me that you have to actually... Um, it, it's an unnatural reading to read this prince as any different than the prince in verse 25. And if he's the same one, then that means this is not an Antichrist figure, this is the Messiah himself. That the people of the prince will rise after the 69th year. The people of the prince will rise and they will do something. Now, this is, again, I, I'm offering this feeling the challenges. But what this would mean is when it says, The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. We've just moved from... The Messiah is being cut off to what will happen, what, what also is going to happen after the 69th year. It doesn't require, I don't think, that it happens in the 70th, 70th week, after the 69th week. It doesn't have to happen in the, in the 70th week. This would have to happen after the 69th week. And I think it points to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., Jesus does a work, he's cut off, and then later... The Jews, the people of the Messiah, he's a Jewish Messiah, the people of the Messiah would be the ones somehow who rise up and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And at least Josephus, the early Jewish historian from the first century, he puts all the weight of Jerusalem's destruction, not on Titus, the Roman ruler who destroyed the city, but on the Jews who instigated it. So, it's possible, 
If it's the people of the prince, and the prince is Titus the Gentile, then the people of the prince are the Romans who overcome and destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD. But if the prince is the Messiah, as I, I think he is, then we'd be looking at the Jews. And we would have shifted from what's happening in Jesus's during his life and ministry, and we've jumped ahead to the point of Jerusalem's destruction 40 years later. So destroying the city and the sanctuary, I think, would be the destruction of the temple, and most, most scholars are in agreement here. Now we go to verse 27. He shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. That one week sounds like the 70th week that's to happen in verse 24. In that final week, 69 have passed, in the final week, the seven years, he'll make a strong covenant with the many. So this is either the Antichrist who's making a covenant with many, at the end of the age, or if the prince is indeed the Messiah, all of a sudden the covenant is something we're very familiar with. The covenant becomes the new covenant that's made with the many, which is Isaiah's language for what Jesus, those with whom Jesus accomplishes his ministry. So a strong covenant in one week during Jesus' seven years A seven-year window, during that seven-year window, the new covenant would be established. And it's going to be strong, firm, fixed, immovable. Behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That this strong covenant is inaugurated by the Messiah. And I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. That's how Jeremiah talks about the new covenant. And that's what's associated with this ministry. Here's Isaiah, with the many. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That is the servant. He's going to die. Out of his death, he will rise and see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many. So three times Isaiah's gone out of his way to say the many, the many, and now Daniel brings it up. He'll make a strong covenant with the many. And that that makes me at least think that he's alluding already in verse 24, he's echoed what Isaiah said was connected to the Messiah's work. This is what's going to happen in the 70th week. And now in in this same time period, a strong covenant will be made. And it just says, a strong covenant will be made with many one week. So I don't know that it has, it's not, doesn't have to be limited to one week. It's just, it could even be during one week. So it seems to me possible. Now we look at this. For half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. If this is the Messiah then I think it would be pointing to the fact that He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the temple. And in His coming, He's declaring the end of all other sacrifice. He is the substance to which all the shadows pointed. He's the embodiment 
of the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That he does it half of a week is a little bit of a trick. And if he dies in 30 A.D., that would be right about halfway. If he dies halfway, because the seventh week would start in A.D. 27, and then it would go, or A.D. 26, and it would go seven years up to A.D. 33. And dying in A.D. 30 would be half the week. And at that half point, he puts an end to the sacrifice. If he dies in A.D. 33, then understanding this is a little bit more difficult, uh, and all I can say is the, the math is possible. Have you ever seen dates in the Old Testament that have uh, five... 38 slash 537. They'll put both of them side by side, and that's because there's two different calendars that are operative, and it could mean 8034 is where the final date is, which would mean that Jesus, even though it's not exactly halfway, he could be saying it's, it's partway through the seven-year period, the, seven, the final week. Partway through, he dies and puts an end to sacrifice. I'm not sure. These are challenging things, and I'm trying to put it together. But I'm, I'm drawn because the prince is mentioned in 25 and he seems to be the same person as the anointed one in 26. All of this is leaning me to think that this is about Jesus and not about the Antichrist at this moment. That's what I'm going to do right now. So if we look at 26 and 27 together... What I'm seeing is a pattern that talks about Jesus, then talks about the destruction of the temple, then goes back and talks about Jesus, then talks about the destruction of the temple. And so it's A, B, A, B pattern. So what that would mean is that the first parts of verses 26 and 27, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week and shall put an end to sacrifice and offering that those are both talking about what Jesus would be doing on his earthly existence. Whereas the second part of each sentence would be focused on what is going to come. And what it, why focus on the destruction of the temple? Because it is the most clear sign that the old covenant and the age of shadow has come to an end. It happens roughly 40 years after Jesus is on earth. But finally the temple is put down, and the New Testament is concerned about that. It anticipates the destruction of the temple because it's a key marker in history that indeed Jesus has inaugurated a new creation, that that we're at a new stage in history. His death is now, when when the temple curtain um, is ripped in two at the cross, that's a pointer that Uh, of the beginning of the end of the temple, and in 70 AD, it comes to an end. So that the people of the prince would ultimately, that is, the Jews would be instigators of the destruction of the city and its sanctuary, its end shall come with a flood, desolations are decreed, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. And Jesus picks this up in the Gospels, and I think he's anticipating 
What happens in 70 AD when the temple is desecrated by the Romans? Now we're back up to the top. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed for two things. To overcome the curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity. That it's already been accomplished. And that's supposed to, even though we're living in an already but not yet state still, longing for the return of Christ, we're supposed to take comfort in the fact that He has definitively overcome already the curse done away with. And we will see that the curse has been done away with in the new heavens and the new earth. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Number two, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Jesus came, died on the cross in order to show God's righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Righteousness has been inaugurated at the coming of Jesus. Already. Something that you and I can enjoy. Right standing with God declared over us and ever increasing walking in right order by His help. Number two, to seal both the vision and the prophet. I think that this is, the image is that um, the prophetic words were open, unfulfilled, and now the stamp of approval has been put on it. Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets. And then, to anoint a most holy place thing or one, and I think the ambiguity is intentional. Because what happens in the 70th week of Jesus' messianic role is he becomes, he's disclosed as the ultimate temple of God. He's the place of God, but he's the person who embodies all holiness. So, it's Jesus' declaration, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build up this physical temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. That he is the anointed person or place that, that in that 70th week is raised up above all others. To him now is given all glory and all authority in everything. To the Son of Man, we were told, in those days, to the Son of Man would be given the one who would come in the clouds, to him would be given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And he already has it. It's already been bound up in him, and we're resting today with a king who is on the throne, who's not trying to get on the throne, but one who humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross, and now God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, He's Lord, He is Lord. 
He has authority over my sin. He's the one who can help me overcome it. He has authority over the brokenness in my family. He's the one that can bring healing and help. That He is able and that He's willing because He indeed is sitting on the throne. And Daniel's message is designed to awaken within the hearers who are living, feeling like God is distant, to let them know that God is sovereign in the present. He's sovereign in the future. He's sovereign right now. And we can have hope. We have hope in a way that even Daniel's audience didn't because they were looking ahead and, and we're looking back. We have three minutes. Questions? You'll notice that in my review here, I put all three together and then I broke down the blessings. The putting, finishing transgression, putting an end to sin and atoning for iniquity, I'm not certain how to distinguish all those. Um, in some models, they would say this hasn't happened yet because you and I are still battling sin. And, pardon? The atonement part has happened. But, so the idea would be that we can't end the 70th week until the future. And, and what, I'm, what I'm proposing is just that in Christ, He's already fulfilled. Every promise is already yes. So even though we are um, waiting to see the end of sin in our lives, it's already been definitively accomplished on our behalf in the person of Christ. But I'm not cer- I don't have a clear defined definition for distinguishing those three. Um, I, I haven't looked at that. I don't know. Um, there are... I can say that archaeology of Jerusalem itself is still growing. In the days of Solomon, he had the equivalent of a moat. But, but what they had in the first century in Herod's temple... I mean, it's surrounded by valleys, but I don't, I, don't, I don't recall how the water would have worked. So I don't know. Sorry. Yeah, whether, you're, whether we're to read that figuratively, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Teresa told me, You've got to make sure you say this verse. Something that happened to me this week was that I felt like Daniel, a little bit overwhelmed. Now, I didn't get to the point he did because I didn't get to see the vision like he saw it. But he got to the point of being mute. He couldn't even talk because he was so shaken up by even it, it, just because of what I just went through. But he was seeing it played out in space and time. And 
Then, this is what we read as we conclude. O Daniel, a man greatly loved, understand that the words that I speak to you, understand the words I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. You need to know this. Um, Fear not, Daniel, for the, from the first day that you set your heart to understand all of this about time, all of this about kingdom, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and you humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. But it took him a long time to get there, the messenger of God, because he got held up by the authority of the prince of Persia in the demonic spiritual realm. He got held up and there was a battle. He says, but I've been trying to get here because from the first day that you humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. That's our God. He's right now in authority, overseeing all things, and He hears the cries of the humble. I was moved a little bit. I mean, this is big. What we just looked at today was was this big. And what we've been looking at, very big. Humbled and then reminded that's where God wants us to be. That's where He wants us to be. And He hears the cries of the humble. Even those that say, God, I'm trying to understand all this. I, I can't tell the folks this week I'm not going to teach, so I've got to get up there and teach. I'm going to do, do the best that I can. Um, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank You that You are a help to us. I thank you that though the details of the future may not fully be clear to us, they are to you. Thank you that Jesus has definitively intruded into space and time and done something definitively, overcoming all enemies, principalities, and powers, triumphing over them already at the cross. Every promise now fulfilled, every promise yes in him, even as we await the consummation. Thank you that the day is coming when there will be no more curse and that we rest in Jesus today having no more curse. Thank you that you are Lord and that we are yours. In Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.